tree was all the same I was under the sky, no new horizons Maybe there is no one else to Hello everyone, welcome back to the Campbell's Footballs Podcast. I'm Dr. Grant Campbell and I'm joined for this episode by Stevie Grieve, who is the Head of Analysis and Opposition Scouting at Dundee United Football Club. Stevie, a warm welcome to you. Thank you. Cheers for the invite. It's great to have you on. Um, how have you been coping this last, well, year now with uh, COVID-19 very much in our lives? It's not ideal, is it? It's not ideal for anybody, but um, I think I'm one of the fortunate ones that as much, as much as there's some issues with a lot of things that goes on with being at work because of protocols, social distancing, having to change the, the layout of the office, the way you conduct meetings and things like that, it's not ideal. But um, we're the fortunate ones that, you know, our life isn't too disrupted because we still have a normal routine. Yeah. People who would be out the door 8, 10 hours a day and doing manual work would probably rely on the the social aspect of being at work and the physical contact and things like that. But um, we're, we're probably more fortunate than most people that we're at work and not too disrupted. But you know, people like, like my wife, for example, she would like to go to the park. She'd like to take the wee man to like baby gymnastics and stuff like that. And it's, it's more of an issue for those sorts of things. Um, like I said before, like people like myself who are working in football, we're probably quite fortunate that we can just get on with it, but for everybody else, it must be torture. You mentioned there you had a, a young family as well. How tough has that been to keep them motivated during this pandemic? Um, I don't know. I'm out. <laughs> Wife does it. <laughs> yeah, I see, like Sarah, Sarah's got to be a man and spends most of the day with them. Like she's a she used to be a nursery school teacher, right? Nursery school nurse. Um, so she's she pretty clued up and she knows what she's doing but um even just simple things like going out for an hour or two going to the park going to like when we lived in Canada we went to Aquatots and stuff so you had stuff going on constantly mm-hmm. which now those things don't exist you couldn't have people coming to visit so little things that you probably took for granted previously you, you probably have more of an appreciation for now I'm intrigued to know about the Canadian connections in this podcast. We'll talk to that about that a, a little bit later on. But Stevie, once again, it's it's great to have you on the show. I hope you're keeping well at your end. I'm really interested to learn about your journey in football and especially your, your current role you're working at Dundee United Football Club, which is absolutely fantastic. It's great to have them back in the Scottish Premiership top flight and doing very well this season. My first question I always like to ask my guests is, what made you want to work in football at the beginning? What was your route in at the start? Um, I, th- I I started coaching when I was sixteen, so um, previous like previous to that, I was like working in chip shops and stuff. Nobody <laughs> wants to be doing that when they're twenty. So um, I I started coaching when I was sixteen. I enjoyed it. Um, I got paid ten pound an hour, so that was like triple what my mates were doing working in other jobs. So I was quite happy mm-hmm. with that. And then I think over time you develop a lot of a passion for it, and then you realise that you've got a lot to learn and you become quite good at it. And then I think when I was when I was 21, I moved to America. Right. And then I think when I came back, I was I, I probably realised that there was maybe a career for it, you know, long term if I if I focused on things that I need to get better at rather than just treat it as a hobby, which is kind of what I'd done for the first five years. So yeah, um, it was more just a, I don't think you plan on doing it unless you go to college for two years and then start coaching. I just, I started coaching because 
Um, I was asked if I fancied doing a job <laughs> because somebody had saw me um, teaching a couple of kids a little bit technical stuff. So it wasn't it wasn't planned. Mm. I just kind of fell into it, and then as it's as it's gone over the years, I've I've stuck at it and become no bad at it. Oh, sounds very exciting! Before the, the, that kind of critical juncture you mentioned there at sixteen, did you ever think that you could make it as a professional footballer yourself? No. No. no, I mean, you you probably have little little delusions of it where you think, yeah, yeah, I could probably do this, but it was never. I don't think it was ever a consideration for me. It was never, never good enough. No, never, a, never a big drama that I had to become a coach at sixteen. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like one of those kids that joined somebody's youth academy at ten and gets released at eighteen, and then their whole world is tipped upside down and they don't know what yes. they're doing. Um, I wasn't one of those ones. I was one of those kids who. Um, as a, you know, I'm five foot five, so when I was younger, I was a. It's interesting to hear you just mention you five foot five is sitting in front of a laptop here, and you know you wouldn't know how tall you were, and you wouldn't know no, how tall I am. No. I'm five, I'm five eight, so uh, you know <laughs> it's quite yeah, interesting to meet somebody who's smaller than me. Yeah, well, when I was growing up, I was never like I never thought I was going to be a footballer, and mm-hmm. people say you be to be a footballer, so yeah, it was never a consideration really, so. Fair enough. Yeah, what okay a, if I the coaching. No, that's very true. That's very true. What about inspirations and idols following football from a young age, Stevie? Who were who were yours? To be honest, probably nobody. I don't. I don't really think. But inspirations or idols or anything like that. Uh huh. Oh, that's interesting. You're the first person I think I've had that answer from, which I find quite fascinating. Is that is it just because you've had a general overview of football and you've not really kind of paid a close attention to a particular team or a particular person? I, I don't think it was ever... I don't think I ever thought about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, I just kind of got on with what I was doing and, and focused on it. I think when I was younger... Um, Ian Cathro got the, the job at Dundee United as the head of the Junior Academy when he was 22. So there was always kind of that, the, not not to say that you compare yourself to other people, but no. maybe other people are um, uh, groundbreakers in that way, where they mm-hmm. can show, you know, there is the, there is the chance. Like yeah. when, you're, when you're a 16, 17-year-old coach who's never played football at any real level, you get told very quickly, you know, you'll never work in professional football because you weren't a footballer. Mm-hmm. Or you'll never get to a decent level of coaching because you didn't play and nobody knows who you are. So there's always those sorts of things where you maybe look at people who who have a similar journey to you or a similar path. You know, like Andre Villas Boas never yeah. played football. Mourinho never played football. Arrigo Saki never played football. So you have maybe subconsciously you think of those people that are um, examples for what you can do mm-hmm. if you're if you're capable enough, but. I don't think I ever deliberately thought you know, that person is a role model and inspiration for me. It's maybe a, maybe a subconscious thing. Fair enough. No, it's a very interesting answer to your, to my question. I think that's really intriguing. You mentioned Ian Cathro there. What did you make of him when he actually went into to management? Because obviously he took the hard job for a period of time and that was a lot of raised eyebrows when that happened. I, I'm, I'm friends with Ian, so... Interesting. Um, I, I expected him to get the job. I knew some, yeah. some conditions which... You know, would be more um, appropriate for him. I think I found him a very um, fascinating fella. I must admit that I found him quite fascinating. He's a good guy. He's a good Uh guy. Um, I think when you're a a young coach and a young manager, you probably want certain conditions to be right for you. Mm 
mm-hmm. as in maybe you go into a club in a pre-season, maybe you have all the staff that you wanted, maybe you have some sort of uh, semblance of what type of squad it is that you want. Mm-hmm. I think if you're a coach at any level, whether it's your first job or your 15th job, yeah. it's going into a situation where um, the previous manager, which was Robbie, who I worked with, um, he left the club in a really, really good, strong position. But you're taking over a, a team which has got a strong dressing room. You've got the media on your back. Um, there's It's your first job. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things going on which maybe are not yeah. ideal. I think maybe in different circumstances, you know, if he took a team in pre-season, mm-hmm. had a full pre-season to work with a team and got his own staff on board and things like that, maybe it would have been a different story. But I think, um, you know, he's a good guy. He's a friend. Um mm-hmm. I'm sure that when the time does come again and he goes to become a manager, it'll be a success. It's just yeah. timing's, are, timing's really important for a lot of things in football. And that's a really interesting point because I was going to ask you about my next question. Was, was he ahead of his time in some ways? And some other managers have kind of come, tried to adopt certain tactics as it were to then say 10 years later, if they had been employed, it would have maybe been a different story. I, I, don't, I don't think that tactics do and do not work. You've got certain types of players and you've got things that they did before and certain ways of working and how you communicate your message. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the playing style that you've got might not be completely suited to the idea. I have to compromise. Yeah. No, it's... It's, 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 not, it's not a... He's tried to build it from the back. No. Like he's the only guy that ever did that. But, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's pretty much common knowledge across the world that there is a ceiling to playing the traditional Scottish way, which is low block defend, play long, play off second balls. There's a ceiling to that. There's only so far that's going to go. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're to take any example of going a different path, you know, Rangers this season are a prime example of what does a different path look like and how successful can that be? Yeah. No, it's a very interesting question. I thought it was worth uh, certainly asking that at the beginning. You mentioned, obviously, early on, Stevie, in our chat, that you are into coaching and you obviously started coaching at 16 how did you fall into that? Um, I was playing futsal in Bell Sports Centre in Perth. And then there was a couple of kids that saw me do some tricks in a game. And I, I went to go and try and teach them. And then there was a guy called Steve McPhee who run the local community centre. And he just kind of came up to me and asked me if I wanted a job. Um, I turned 16 a couple of weeks later. So that meant I was allowed to go and start. And then initially I went to go and coach badminton in Kinross High School. Um, which is somebody who can't play badminton is an interesting experience. <laughs> I can't either, so I could I could accept that too. <laughs> no, but I, I think even just you know when you're 16 and you start as an assistant coach, I don't think it's necessarily about can you coach that sport or mm-hmm. those skills. You're you're more learning how to control a group, put a process in, um, think about what types of skill development you want to put in, yeah. and then how do you you just kind of keep control of the the group because you know. If you've if you've tried to take a class of eight year olds, you can very very quickly lose control of the group and yep. just the session just descends into chaos. Yeah, that was my next question. What groups of people were you coaching? Was it youngsters predominantly, or was it a little bit older as well? No, no. Like when I first started, it was mostly kids under twelve, and then after about six months, I got a couple of football classes because uh, the opportunity opened up, and obviously that was kind of what I wanted to coach, but. Um, there's only ever like a, a lead coach and assistant coach for every class just because that's how you know the sessions were run yeah um, so I was given a couple of assistant coaching jobs for maybe a year mostly with Steve and a couple of other people and then um, 
again, you just kind of learn how to control a group, put sessions together, um, take a register, turn up on time. Um, but while I was doing that, I was always thinking, well, how could you structure this better? So I was quite big on if you have 12 sessions, what does, what does your plan look like over 12 sessions and what your objectives at the end of it? So um, mm-hmm. when I was eventually given my first kind of group of kids between five and eight, I had quite a structured development plan for each 12-week block. And then when I was given the, the eight to 12 groups, it was obviously the session types are different and the different skill sets that you want to develop are there. But you, again, it's a case of what's your objective for the end of the block and how do you achieve that? Yeah. Yeah, I get the feeling that you were very determined and very dedicated at what you were doing with your coach and you spent quite a lot of time preparing these things. Yeah, yeah. Like I, There was quite a lot of times I would turn up and I'd ask somebody, what are you doing today? And they wouldn't have a plan. And To me, even at 16, 17, not having a plan was unacceptable. And then quite quickly when I was put in charge of groups, instead of having a one-week plan, I'd have a 12-week plan and I'd plan, you know, what the different concepts I wanted to apply or the different technical skills were. Yeah. So, like I thought, if a school has a curriculum, so should a football coach. And if a school has a 12-year curriculum, then there's nothing to stop you from having a one-year mm-hmm. um, plan and how you're going to get them from being a, a decent six-year-old to being a quite competent seven-year-old and what things are you going to have to do within... Um, like it, I remember early on writing down what types of skills do you have. You've got game intelligence, um, you've got technical skills and you've got physical skills and then you've got teamwork skills. So I tried to make um, sessions, which I, I didn't know at the time was an early kind of adoption of the four corner model, they call it. So mm-hmm. it's more of just a case of how do you plan these sessions to give the kids a good experience? And then for me, it was always just, I, I was quite big on just experimenting with ideas because I was sure. a young coach and just wanted to try stuff. Yeah. Do you think more people should experiment and try new things at coaching in, in our country in Scotland? Yeah, yeah. I think there's... There's um, I don't want to say there's a snobbery to messing up a session, but like I took Lethem Tangerines for for six years from when I was um, maybe 18 till I was 24 when I moved to Switzerland, and all I, I treated it like an apprenticeship. So I had mm-hmm. a job where I had to do things properly, but I had a football team where if I had an idea, then I could experiment with it. Yeah, and I think you know, people talk about learning from mistakes. That's that is true. You Absolutely, as long as you reflect on it. And if you can reflect on it and look at you know, what might have been able to be done better, then that's good. I think a lot of people don't understand or maybe don't recognise what a mistake is or what a mistake looks like or, or why it happened. But um, if you've got some sort of idea about what you want things to look like, then at least you can kind of guide things towards that. Whether people agree with it or not what the idea is, is, is irrelevant as long as you're able to yep. try and put the pieces together to get that to be the outcome. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and of course, the major factor as well is if you're enjoying it as well, that makes all the difference too. Yeah, yeah. That's, that is the most. I think coaching is a job which is probably the most enjoyable. Nobody nobody goes home and complains about a, a session that they've done. Nobody. If people are going home and complaining about being a football coach, then they need to get a grip of their life. Mm-hmm. Go and do a different job. Um, there are things that you can complain about, admin, organisation, um, things around it, but when you're on the field for an hour, an hour and a half, however long it is, it's, it's obviously the best job in the world. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier on in our chat, Stevie, that you went to America for a period of time. How did that come about? Um, was it something you decided was, or did an opportunity come up? Yeah, yeah like w- w- one of my friends, he went, again, Steve McPhee, 
he got me into coaching. So he went to America a, a couple of times for nine months at a time. And I always kind of thought, well, that'd be a good experience to leave home and go and try and coach abroad. And then um, the nature of the job was that you would take probably five, six, seven sessions a day. So it's a really intensive learning environment. And then you have maybe 30 other British coaches going at the same time. So there's other people you can watch, speak to and all these sorts of things. So um, I applied for the job, went for an interview in Dundee, got it. And then a couple of months later, it was just a case of get a visa then then get sent off to New York. So that was that was quite interesting. And New York is obviously one of the kind of hotbeds for um, soccer, as they say now over there in America, and, and, and very exciting to see what is happening there. You must have gained quite a lot of experience about the the work that is going on there, but also in comparison to Scotland too. The honest answer is I don't, I don't really know. Um, when I was there, we had... 30 predominantly English guys taking sessions and a few a few Americans and it was mostly like American youth clubs so what would happen is you turn up you take you know, a youth team that have paid this company a ridiculous amount of money for you to go and take their sessions mm. and then you would just implement your own your own style there was there wasn't really a style of play within within the club within the academy within the organization it was just a here's a group of kids going take some sessions and uh, you coach them in a the game day, and that that was literally it. I think from from what I gather, um, the MLS academy system is quite good, but I've never worked in it, so I don't. Yeah, I don't really know to be perfectly honest. You mentioned the range of coaches that were over there. Any names that you recognised when or working with over there that you you heard from coming back? No, no, I've spoke to a few of the guys that I worked with, but that was that was twelve years ago. I worked with some of them, so. Um, Still keep in touch with one or two, but um, there was, to be honest, I don't think there was anybody who was there um, who'd worked at any sort of level before. It wasn't that sort of company. It was a, it was very much um, an entry level thing where if you want a coaching job, you go there, you get experience. Uh, they make money off of the work that you put in, and then then that's it. Yeah. So obviously, your your time in America, Steve. How long were you over there in America? May I ask? I was there about seven months. Mm-hmm. Did you find it a good experience? No, <laughs> no. I've said this. Do you know? I've been on. I've been on a bunch of different podcasts, and I have. Um, I, I don't want to slaughter them, but I have absolutely nothing positive to say. Interesting. Nothing Interesting. positive to say. Yeah. Um, it was a good experience from the perspective of being a young guy living abroad, um, fending for myself, having to do my sessions and learn from the kids and, and some of the other coaches, but um, yeah, I've <laughs> almost nothing positive to say about the people I worked for. And Fair I'm enough. not going to, I'm not going to revise history and say anything positive because there's nothing I can say. I'm not going to say enough. anything negative. I'm just going to say it wasn't good. Fair enough. That's uh, that's to be, that's a very acceptable answer. In, in terms of the story after that, what happened next? So I came back, um, contacted Dundee. John Holt was the, academy manager at the time and he offered me a job pretty quickly with Dundee so I took the the development centre for a few weeks very quickly I was moved into under 13s to help them um, end of the season came and then I was given two teams which was the 11s and the 13s and then um, Ian offered me a job with Dundee United when he was the academy coach or the academy manager there with the younger ones um, and then John Holt moved me up to an under 17s 
yeah. when I was 21. So I was taking Dundee's under-17s when I was pretty young, which was a good experience because it was the older age players that I wanted to work with, mm-hmm. um, implement some ideas and that sort of thing. So came back, I, I continued to coach my, my Sunday boys team with Lethem, mm-hmm. which was obviously you know the experimentation team. Uh, they always did really well. They were very well coached. It was just... Um, they treated it like a learning experience and I treated it as a I'm going to have time to experiment and learn here and Dundee was how do you put your your ideas into place and um, work at a professional level with professional demands and expectations. Yeah, when you're working in an academy like Dundee and then you're beginning to see a lot of young players really aspiring to get into the senior setup, is there a little bit more pressure for you to, to implement those ideas? Yeah, I think... You, when there's three coaches, you've got Holty, myself, Paul Tosh. Um, I did a lot of the technical stuff. Holty did most of the team shape-related stuff, and Paul Tosh would take more of the attacking stuff. So my, my job was to try and refine the technique of the players before they went into the first team. So there was a little bit of pressure on that because you need to identify what it is that they've got issues with and try and come up with individualised or small group sessions to try and, and fix those. There was... There was one kid in the team, Leighton McIntosh, who at yes. 16, 17, physically, he was more than capable of playing in the first team, but we had to work on his receiving back to goal because he was he was most likely going to develop into a target man. We had to work on his protecting the ball and turning very quickly. So mm-hmm. like protecting the ball while running down the line, using his left shoulder and things like that. So there was there was players in the team that you knew were good. Cammy Kerr was in the team. Um, he, was, he was one of the 15s that moved up once mm-hmm. every week. So... We kind of looked at Cammy's situations where once we broke the, the first line of pressure, when would Cammy go in the overlap and arrive in the final third? He always had a great attitude, so no matter what you tried to teach him, he was, he was always take it in. And I think now he's a captain of Dundee, so you can That's see right. he did develop pretty well. So, And that was yeah. my next question, because obviously when you see a player that's fulfilling their potential and getting into the senior squad, you, you must feel pretty pleased that that has yeah. been... A big help. Yeah, it's always nice to see people well. You know, if you put some effort into to trying to help them, you understand that, you know, of the, the thousands of hours the kids put in, you're maybe like a less than a one percent part of mm-hmm. of the journey for them. But if you've been able to help them a little bit, then it gives you a little bit of pride along the way. Yeah, absolutely. When did the Dundee United job come about? I think that's really, really interesting to talk about next. Um so I, I arrived here in July twenty nineteen. Andy Goldie had spoken to, I'm going to say January 2019, just mm-hmm. before or just after he was given the academy manager's job. And Robbie Nielsen called me um, in the January as well. And what, what happened was I was coming towards the end of my contract with the, the club I worked for in Canada. Mm-hmm. And Andy Goldie was getting the academy manager's job. So just text him saying, do you have any any jobs in the academy full time? And he said, I do. So there was the, the head coach of the 16s academy team, was the head of academy analysis. Um, but Robbie Nielsen had asked me if I would, I could help the first team do some analysis up to uh, the end of the season. And then just uh, two or three weeks before they got in the playoffs, I said, I'd just text them saying, like, do you want me to do some work on Hamilton and St Mirren? Because that will be one of the two teams that we, we face in the playoffs. And he said, oh, that's great. Because I was going to text you anyway. So I've done some, some preparation work for that. Um, and then me and Sarah, we walked around the park in Burlington for the longest two hours ever. <laughs> we lost on penalties. And I thought, we'll be staying in Canada for one more year. Yeah. Um, 
and then a couple of weeks later, I got a, a phone call from from Robbie and Andy. Just um, look, things might move quickly, so be ready. And then Tony, the Tony, the sporting director, called me and just talked me through what he wanted me to do. And, and a few weeks later, we we moved back. It was a lot of stuff we had to move back at the time. We just had just had Ruben. He was only six months at the time um, mm-hmm. to move the dog back, ship our house back. So um, it was quite a, a stressful, but funny time because it's you know you go away you go traveling with mm-hmm. a suitcase and you come back with a wife a dog and a baby it's it's a bit of a fundamental change yeah absolutely i i jumped a little bit ahead of the game to ask about the dundee United stuff i should really have talked about canada where did that come about in this story what made you want to go and do a bit of traveling in canada um well if, if you go back we went from when i worked for dundee we then i got another job and then we moved to Switzerland. Then we moved to Canada. And then we moved to India. Then we moved to Canada. So um, travelled a bit, a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a good time, to be honest. Um, Very true. So we went to Canada because when we'd been in India for three years, I don't know if you've ever been to India, but no. it's an amazing place. It is incredibly difficult to live there on a daily basis. And we'd been there three years, and Sarah said to me one day, she's like we had a bunch of different job offers. One was Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Japan, um, Indonesia. So there was there was a few jobs kind of on the table. And then she just looked at me and she says, can we not just live in a normal, easy to live in country? <laughs> um, okay. So we had we had a couple of options. One was one was Canada, one was America, and we, we decided we wanted to go to Canada. So we went to Canada and we stayed there for three years. So Beautiful place, great people. Um, would quite, would quite happily go back. To be honest, it's a great place to live. Yeah, whereabouts in Canada were you? And would you have maybe done a little bit of coaching and or or work over there? Was that something that interested you? No, it was. We, we, I was offered the head of the director of coaching job at Burlington Youth Soccer Club. So, um, they were one of the bigger clubs in in Ontario with seven thousand kids. Um, yeah. God knows how many coaches, but millions of teams. Um. So probably 60 or 70 performance staff, you could call it, because we had all sorts of coaching staff for different levels, recreational level, house league, um, development, elite academy, that sort of stuff. So we had a lot of those guys. So I went there to take that job because that was the place mm-hmm. where we wanted to live rather than the job necessarily. It was just yeah. a, a nice job, but it was more just we'd like to live there. So yeah. we, we went there and said I was quite happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I love Canada and I'd love to go to Canada post-pandemic. So let's hope we can go traveling sometime soon, that's for sure. You mentioned about the Dundee United thing. I want to revert back to that earlier, Stephen. And you, you talked a bit about Robbie Nielsen. What was he like to work with? Fantastic. Great guy. Um, he's very analytical, very driven, um, straight talker. Um, with me, he was very like very personable like I got on really well with him great guy um, and he, he knew what he was doing very good coach in the field very good at, at taking the player meetings um, the team meetings he had an interest in like I would speak to him about some of the psychological things he would do I remember remember one game um, there was a case of beer just put in the dressing room after it after that game we got beat and he was that about and the players were like is this, is this a trick it's like, no, have a beer. You've played well recently. Have a beer. Enjoy yourselves. See you later. <laughs> that was it. Like, players were expecting to get, I think, probably get a 
wee bit of a telling off, but he was like, no, you can only do this four or five times a season. You can't do it all the time. So yeah. sometimes you need to yeah, bring them along rather than just whip them down every time they, they don't play so well. So, yeah, yeah. great guy. Um, kind of sad to see him leave in the summer, to be honest. But Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I was going to say, when he left on United, how big a surprise was it that he then decided to go to Hearts? Yeah, it was obviously a big surprise. It was like I spoke to him on the Friday and it was his 40th. Um, and then on the Sunday he left. So, yeah, it was a, a huge surprise. I think probably what's happened is they've decided that they want a new manager and Robbie, obviously, very good with Hearts the first time. Mm. Um, the situation in England when he went there was not what it was um, advertised as, as far as I believe. And then when he came back to us, obviously, it was a got the squad and then revamped it and then managed to to work to to get us back up at the championship. And yeah. I know a lot of people say, you know, we had the best team, but you know, we were the best prepared, we were the best organized. It wasn't just we we're the best team. We went, we were 15 points clear. We won every big game. Mm-hmm. Um beat Dundee 6-2, beat Inverness 4-1 and 3-0. It was it wasn't an accident we were 15 points clear. We were the best team in the league by a mile, and it was, you know, it was a, we had a very good squad. Nobody would deny that, but we were, we were very well coached. And it's great to see Dundee United back in the Scottish Premiership. And even as an Aberdeen supporter myself, I still think it's great to see Dundee United back in the top flight. Head of analysis and opposition scouting at Dundee United, Stevie. What a grand title. Can you just elaborate to my listeners what it, what your job entails? Um, so I'm kind of the... You could say the manager of the information flow, if you really wanted. Um, so we, we analyse the opponent. That's tactically, you know, what do they do? We take individual level analysis, you know, what, what does our players do? Um, what's the strategy of the team? How does that manifest itself in a game plan? Mm. Then we look at data analysis, which is for the opposition, which is for the opposition player team and players. Um, the data will come in for our own team and players, obviously. Um, then you've got contextualised data, which comes from the league and then outside sources. And then you've got recruitment analysis. So, it's it's how do you prepare for teams? Uh, how do you prepare games? How do you prepare a game plan based on what they have and what we have? Um, how do you plan ahead? You know how many points they need to finish top six. You know so after we played Aberdeen, um, Petodre at New Year, we needed sixteen points to get into the top six. We knew that going into the last you know eleven games, so sixteen points. We thought we could we could probably manage. Um, we're only far off in the end, but. One of those things where you, you drop a couple of points here and there, and it's has big ramifications at that point. So mm-hmm. it's there's a lot of just gathering information and turning it into some form of insight, which helps coaching staff make decisions. Yeah, a fascinating range of data. I take it from a range of different sources that you would utilize. I take it. Yeah, like for example, if you're playing Rangers, you might look at their entries into the final third or their entries into the penalty box, and mm-hmm. how do you? turn that into some sort of game plan to stop them from creating a million scoring chances against you because hmm. they're obviously a really good team and you can do that for every team and it's just a case of managing the, the information to best assess what it is that they do and how can you, one, stop them from doing what they want to do and two, make them uncomfortable doing something yep. else. Um, hmm. And then how do we use the players that we have to then go and attack or defend or play in transition or whatever hmm. it is that we want to do to try and approach yeah. each team. So, there's the data analysis side of it, which is mm-hmm. just how can you turn numbers into pictures? That's the way I always try and 
portray it. Um, and then there's the, the strategic planning aspect of mm-hmm. what games do we have upcoming, what players do we have in the squad, you know, how can we manage the the minutes, the training loads, the playing load of the players, and maybe do we switch a player in and out because we know maybe they've accumulated fatigue over the season, which you can take from um, the sports science side of it. So mm-hmm. it might be that somebody's dropping off a little bit because there's just accumulated fatigue, but also um, if you bring a little bit of freshness into the team, it gives you a different response. So um, there's there's obviously a performance side of it, but there's the planning side of it, mm-hmm. and then there's the uh, recruitment of players and identifying what it is that we need based on what do we think and what do we feel and what do we see every day, but also what does the data tell us? Very true, very true. How much do you think that data has transformed football now? How, how big a difference has it made? I think it's just a, a natural evolution. Like if you if you go to find a car, you don't just walk in Arnold Clark and point at the red one, say, I want to take that one. What you do is you go and you filter it down, you say, I want to, like, I can't drive an automatic, I can't drive a manual, so I can only drive an automatic, so I have to filter automatic. It's better than me, I don't drive at all. <laughs> I learned to drive last year. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, like, you, you, you'd filter it down, you'd go, right, I want an automatic, I want a petrol car, and I want it to have under 20,000 miles, what's available? Mm-hmm. That's, that's you know, how football essentially works now for, for player recruitment. In yeah. terms of, um, in terms of, how you approach games and stuff you're still going to have the subjective element of we have these players they have these players that's how we play that's how they play Mm -hmm. this is how if we set up these are the problems we're naturally going to have because of the shape we set up in but uh, what problems can we cause them what what it is that we're trying to do so there's still always going to be a tactical element of of structures and strategies and different ways to approach the game but data and information are a natural thing that are going to come into any sport because people are looking to gain an advantage. Yeah, absolutely. The reason I asked that question is I know that there's some uh, predominant figures in football like Michael Cox, a guy who does zonal marking, Duncan Alexander from Opta and a range of other kind of statistical gurus in that that are looking, as you say, for that extra 2-3% that could make a difference. Yeah, and I think it's, I don't want to say it's ignorant to just say that that can't help you. Whether mm. you agree or disagree that it can help you or has context that is transferable, do you want to be ignorant and have no information and just go in blind? Or do you want to have some information which might help you, but then you can still dismiss it? Mm. It's better to have the information and be able to dismiss it than to have nothing and just guess. Correct. So it's one of those things where we might say, just take take Aberdeen because we've played them. They've played over 500 crosses this, this season, right? So they made 500 crosses in the box or more. Um, there was like 40 more from the left-hand side than from the right-hand side. So that tells you maybe when Johnny Hayes gets down the left-hand side, he's quite happy to whip the ball in the box. Mm-hmm. If Sam Cosgrove's in the box, you're probably like, right, let's not defend crosses. Let's just make sure the cross doesn't come in. If you have um, if Flo Camberry in the box, you're quite happy to defend crosses because it's not mm-hmm. good in the air, it's not his game. So you're, you're happy to defend crosses. So whether it's Johnny Hayes putting a cross in onto Sam Cosgrove. Don't want to be having to defend Cosgrove in the air, but if it's Camberry in the air, you're quite happy to defend him because we yeah. think that we've got a superiority there, especially with Big Ryan. So it's you can look at that and say, right, we've got that again with Livingston. It's like Livingston play almost two and a half times the amount of crosses from the right hand side because Nicky Devlin goes in the overlap than they do from the left hand side because. Uh, they stopped playing Alan Forrest for some reason. So mm-hmm. you know that when Livingston want to finish the attack, it's 
down the right hand side, ball in the box, down the left hand side, it's a wee bit more crossy, dribbly, and then look for passes through the lines and things like that. So, um, you know, straight away that if you force Livingston down the left hand side, you're not going to have to defend the box as much. So, there's that sort of thing. You also know from the data that um, Rangers have got a huge weakness at defending defensive transitions because they don't actually win many tackles in the middle of the park. And if you watch them after they lose the ball, they're, they're quite open in possession, which means they're naturally more open in mm-hmm. defensive transition. So you've got data points that can show you um, whether it's a map of all the actions that have happened or mm-hmm. uh, just basic percentages and bar charts and things like that that show yeah. you these things happen in the game and these things don't happen in the game. And sometimes you do have preconceptions. Like St. Johnston have been the fourth best team in the league this season. Mm-hmm. Um, they're I think minus 15 for expected goal difference because they've scored mm-hmm. 7 less and conceded 8 more than expected yeah. so. the XG mm-hmm. is an interesting graphic for me in terms of how the game has changed because when I look at XG and I hear people talking about XG, people say to me how relevant is it? And I says actually it's quite an interesting parameter to look at because you can see teams that are taking advantage of opportunities that come their way and those that are maybe passing up too many chances themselves I think the problem is with the name, mm-hmm. expected goals. It's not the best name. If you I just agree. said chances created. Absolutely. You said your chances created for a game is 1.4 goals. Mm-hmm. And what you could say is we could have expected to score 1.4 goals, but obviously you can't score 0.4 goals. But if you average that out over the season, what does that, that look like? It means, well, maybe you get 38 goals for the one and then what's 0.4? So taking our 16 on top of that, you may say, right, we've got 54 goals expected for the season. We've scored 54. So, you know, we're on track for that, for example. So um, taking XG in isolation is, I don't want to say it's worthless, but it gives you some sort of balance of play for each game because sure. each game you're going to have an expected goals for and against and an expected result and expected points. Yeah. If you also take um, shots on target ratio, shot ratio, expected goal ratio it might be that my expected goal today was 0.33 and yours was one so your ratio was you know two to one because mm-hmm. you've 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 got 66 percent of it and i've got 33 percent of it so yeah. for every three every two it's can score the you know every two that we concede we're going to score one so there's different ways where you can look at it and if you take a wider angle of it and say four or five different points of it what you can do is you can then get a a wide ranging view and it might be that let's say the expected goals is really high for but it's unsustainable because your conversion rate is like 30 Mm percent what you'll find is that the team might have a lot of expected goals but at the same time their conversion rate is ridiculous the conversion rate will always drop Mm -hmm. because nobody converts at like 30 40 percent it's normally between uh, team level between seven and twenty Mm-hmm. 20 yes. being extreme end um, whereas at player level you know, like a good striker will be somewhere between 10 and 22% so when you get like um, an Erling Haaland for example scoring 34% of his chances either he's an unbelievable finisher and that will drop off at some point or he's just shooting from the best positions and turns down bad shots which means that he's scoring 1 in 3 rather than 1 in 5 sure. so players are naturally becoming um more efficient and more effective, which is going to then in turn uh, change a little bit of the data analytics and the, the things that we know. Because if you if you go back 20 years in the NBA, people were taking mid-range jump shots for two points and missing. Yes. People don't do that anymore. They 
they swing an extra pass out to the corner and take a three because mm-hmm. the percentage chance of scoring it uncontested is higher than than the, the mid-range jump shot too. Yes. So if it's converted at a higher rate, and it's worth an extra point. Teams are now, like if you watch the, the Chicago Bulls documentary, a lot of the games were under 100 points each. Now you've got teams that are consistently getting over 110 because data analytics has helped make better decisions and try and help players make better choices with which shots that they take declining, you know, how can you maximise the amount of points per possession you can make? And I think football will end up going down that route as well. Yeah, so really interesting dynamics there and really glad you um, illustrated those. I thought it was very exciting to, to listen to that. Obviously, Mickey Mellon has come in at Dundee United. Have you had any deals with Mickey and what is he like to work with? Yeah, I work with Mickey on a daily basis. Oh, he's a good guy. Um, very personable, very affable. Um, a passionate guy. So you can probably see that from from the games on the, on the mm. TV. You can hear him quite often, so... Yeah, nice guy. When he came into the job, I was a bit unsure how we get on, but he seems to have done quite well. Okay, they haven't managed to get into the top six this season on the United, but first season back in the top flight, don't think it's been too bad, has it? No, no, I think, you know, at the start of the season, if you asked everybody, could we compete for top six? The answer would have been absolutely yes. We have a good enough team. If you look through the squad, Shankland, Scotland, in my opinion, Scotland's best goal scorer in the Scotland squad. I don't think McBurney should be anywhere near ahead of him Kevin is a bit good player but I don't think she'd be ahead of him um, so you've got Shanks as one of the most naturally clinical finishers that you're going to find uh, McNulty obviously a Scotland squad striker from from 18 months ago so shows his yeah. goal and Nicky Clark's come up he's a very intelligent player scored almost a goal a game in the championship he's been excellent so. Nicky Clark he's been fantastic this season uh, he's, he's done well so so, um, you look at the two fullbacks, Smithy and Robson. Smithy, uh, again, Smithy, I think, should be in the Scotland squad because um, if Stephen O'Donnell's in it, I think, as much as Sod's a good player, Smithy's also a very good player. He's capable of being in the squad, given the, the, how good a season he's had. Jamie Robson's done very well his first year coming up. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting year. Ian Harks has been, has been mm. really, really solid. I think there's more to come from him. So, if you look through the squad, it's not a... People say it's a championship squad. It's nowhere near a championship well, squad. That's what I was going to say. How, is it an exciting time to be a Dundee United supporter alone? Because there's a lot of young players there that are very enthusiastic, improving game upon game, in my opinion. And, and obviously, you've consolidated your status this season very comfortably. And you feel next season will be exciting to see where this Dundee United team could progress. I've been really impressed with Segrist, your goalkeeper. I think he's been outstanding. I thought the game passed in the weekend as we were calling this on the 22nd of March. Uh, your lad Fuchs was outstanding. In my opinion, played a massive part in the goal against my team Aberdeen, uh, which we won't go into because uh, it makes me upset. But I thought he played very well. And the lad Sporla has also been very impressive. Yeah, like, Adrian's, Adrian's a, a funny one because playing in the Scottish Championship is not for everybody. And he took a wee bit of time to, to get you know, embedded in the team. There were certain games we'd pick for him to play and he would he would come in and do do pretty well. But there'd be other games like if we're playing against Morton and they're spending, you know, the bulk of the game just battering long diagonals on his head. That's not a game where he's going to flourish. It's, it doesn't suit his skill set. So like Jamie's perfectly capable of dealing with that. So um yeah, Sporley's done done really well. He's a he runs like 12 and a half, 13 K a game. He would be an absolute nightmare if you had to go and mark him because mm. he's lightning quick, he's strong, he's aggressive, very brave, gets himself in good positions. Um, 
doesn't just start off the left. He just he just runs in behind constantly. He's he's a really dynamic, interesting player. Jondo Fuchs is when when if Jondo gets fit and he gets a proper preseason under his belt, I would not be surprised if he becomes in the top bracket of midfielders in the country. He is unbelievable. You see the run he made to keep it, and he bodies the guy. He's so strong. Technically, he's about six five because he doesn't lose a header. Yeah. Um, he is, yeah, he's a baller. He reminds me of he reminds me of Ndidi at Leicester and the way that he gets himself involved. He's quite physical. He does yeah. a dirty work, but he also has got an eye for a pass as well. And as you say, very determined guy, and and obviously made a big difference in that game against Aberdeen. Yeah, he's he's been incredible, and I think um, when you look through the data analytics, he's winning the ball back thirteen times a game, which puts him in the top three. So, um, and that's it's possession adjusted as well. It's not. Because you know, Stephen Davis, if he has 70% of possession, can't win the ball back that often. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, Jondo has been an incredible signing. Yeah, I mean, the great thing for me about Dundee United as well is that there's a bit of experience in there in that team. You've Mark Reynolds, who used to play at Aberdeen, Peter Pollitt as well has come in. What have those guys given to the team, in your opinion? They, 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 they're good leaders. Like Reynolds is good at settling people down. He's good. He's actually a funny guy. Leads the dressing room really well. Um, Pedro, again, Pedro's a lovely boy. Um, I feel for him because he picks up little injuries. And just as he's getting going, you can see what a, what a lovely football he is. Lovely balance, links the game really well. Um, they're good guys in and around the dressing room. You know, like just keep the place settled, bit of banter. Um, yeah, they're, they're good guys. Um, I think when you look through the squad, there's a, there's a nice balance of experienced guys like Reynolds, like Connolly. Um, Nicky Clark, Benji, like you mentioned, he's 28 and he's been unbelievable all season. And then you've got you've got the younger guys like Logan Chalmers, Louis Appery, who are Logan Chalmers is like a Scottish Van Persie. And then mm-hmm. Louis Appery, as we saw in the championship, when when you give him the ball on the left hand side and give him some space, he can he can cause damage to the teams because his delivery is quite good and he's a big powerful boy. We need to work on his decision making and stuff, but it's uh it's a, it's a work in progress with any young player. And like Dundee United have, have kind of prided themselves for years in the academy being very strong. Mm-hmm. And you can see that just now, you know, Andy Goldie, just now as academy manager, but previously Brian Grant and Dave Bowman, who mm-hmm. helped bring some of these young ones through from nine, ten years old. The point that they're at now, have got Kai, Falkirk, Chris Mockery, Montrose, Lewis Nielsen, I'm going at Falkirk. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think that they're that far away from being good Scottish Premier League players. It's just finding the right time to put them in and them having the maturity to bob along with the ups and downs, not be too high when they play great and not be too low if they if they don't have the best game. So it's, yeah. we have we have a very a very strong squad, a lot of good individual players and a lot of depth coming through from the young ones below that. And I think that's credit to the guys that have been there for a long time. Yeah, no, certainly very exciting times to, to be a Dundee United fan at the moment. I mean, one of the really interesting things for me is the, the top end of the pitch as well. You mentioned McNulty and Shankle and McClark and maybe just haven't quite scored the number of goals as many people hoped they would score this season, but they're still putting in the numbers. So this this is an interesting thing, right? How many goals would you expect a newly promoted team to score or any mm-hmm. team in the Scottish Premier League to score? Mm-hmm. What would you expect their expected goals to be? So maybe let's say that people might say, okay, well, can Dundee United score a goal a game? That's 38 goals in a season, right? Yeah. That might be normal. Okay, fine. 
how many goals would you expect your strikers to get each? So let's say Shankland uh, has expected goals this season is six. He's scored... I was going to say six apiece. Uh Right, so let's say Shanks' expected goals based on the chances he's had this season is worth about six. He's scored eight. Um, Mm -hmm. Clarkie's scored eight, eight or nine, I think. Um, McNulty's got maybe two. Clark's got nine I've got him in my fantasy team. (laughs) So Clarkie's got Clarkie's got nine. I think he's got he's got three penalties within that as well. So yeah. um, again, it's done very well. So how many goals do people expect him to come up? Yes. If, if Shanks comes, if Shanks comes up and everybody says, "Oh, I think he's going to get twenty goals," well, you could go through Scottish Premier League history in the last ten years. Yeah. How many players have actually scored twenty goals? And there's not an awful lot, is there? I mean, I mean the only people I can think of is Michael Hinton, that motherwell, and that's gone back a fair few years now. Right. And how many were penalties? That's a good point too. This is the thing: like, how many players get, say, fifteen non-penalty goals? And and the thing is, Adam Rooney's another example. Adam Rooney's another example. He scored a lot of penalties for Aberdeen. So, it's another person I could look up. Sam Cosgrove. I think think Kevin Nisbet of the the goals he scored, maybe two or three penalties as well. Mm -hmm. So, when we're looking at non-penalty goals, Shanks doesn't take the penalties. Mm -hmm. I think he scored seven. Would we have hoped McNulty would score more? Yes, we would have. If you speak to Sparky himself, he would say he wants to score more goals. He's that I think he'll keep improving. I think he'll keep improving. He wasn't a bad player, and he still isn't a bad player. It's just maybe not quite happened for him in games. I think he's a very talented striker, McNulty. The the, the, the type of system we play isn't going to lead to creating, say, 14 shots a game from good positions. Mm-hmm. You might have the odd game where you take 14 shots, right? But you maybe within 14 shots have four decent chances. A decent chance is like a one in four chance of scoring. Mm-hmm. So if you take a penalty being 0.75 XG, that's yeah. three out of four penalties are scored in general. So when we're looking at how many goals does a player score, how many has Morelos got this year? 12? Edward's got what, 15, 17, something like that. Um, so it's not like Shanklin has come up created a huge amount of chances for his teammates, works his nuts off, presses, chases mm-hmm. down those balls. We've seen him back helping at Robson and Smithy at fullback position in some games. The things that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a player of his profile, he's doing so much more of. Yes. Um, so when you, if, if you speak to Lawrence, he'll tell you he wants to score more goals, and of course he does. Um, but you can only score goals if we create chances. And the way we play... Um, especially this season, is don't get relegated. Mm-hmm. Win as many games as you can. Um, we're not going to be winning games 4-3 in, mm-hmm. in the general. Like we've had one game this season where we scored three goals and it was against Livingston about a month ago. So That's right. The way, the way we set up is going to be, it's not going to be set up in a way where we can get somebody 20 goals or 15 goals. It's going to be, can we reduce the amount of chances we create and mm-hmm. win games 1-0, 2-1, and yes. where we're going to get them from is probably going to be from set pieces, from counter attacks, from a little bit from open play because you know we've got the players to do that. So mm-hmm. um, when people say we expected X player to get more, Lyndon Dykes got nine last year and two were penalties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's so, an interesting dynamic because I think I, I was sort of asking the question as a, as a fan of uh, Dundee United or, or any club for that matter. And I think sometimes what you're trying to tell me there is, you know, it's more than just the goals, but people just look at how many people have scored six or seven goals and if they not hit that it's not been a good season but it's more than just that as you've just explained so, so what, what you could do is that you could look at how many games does a player make so Shanks missed six games because he, he hurt his ankle 
Mm-hmm. Really hurt I can't remember what it was. So he missed six games. So let's say he finishes a game with 32 games. If he scores eight goals, he scored one every four games. That's a reasonable return for yes. any striker outside the top six. Completely. If he finishes the season with 12, which, let's be honest, like he, it's not out with the realm of possibility. He had one cleared off the line the other day. Um, if he was to score four in the last five, nobody would put it past him. And then you finish the season saying, well, yeah, I got 12 and 30. That's a pretty good return for anybody in their, their first real season back in the Premier League with the first team and first uh, season for the team back in the Premier League. Now, it might be that if we played a more open, more expansive game, we would create more chances. Yeah, and we but you get picked off against more... You would get picked off against other teams as well. And this is this is the question I was trying to ask because, you know, it's finding that balance between setting a team up to be tough to beat, to win games 1-0, maybe not be the most attractive to watch against opening up being a little bit more flamboyant and losing a game four three. I, to be honest, I think Dundee United fans wouldn't mind the odd four three game. Or, <laughs> or, um, I think a lot of Aberdeen fans would think that too. Just scoring a goal would be a help for starts. I think, I think last season was was one of the years where we would see out games. We'd win two 0 and then sometimes we'd get booed off because we're well, not booed off, but they'd be booing because we would just be keeping the ball and seeing out the game in the end. But um, that's what we needed to do to get promoted. So would we all like to win games 4-3? Of course we would. But um, the natural reality is that football is a low-scoring sport and if you score two goals, generally you'll win. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we're in the evolution stage with the team just now of don't concede and see what we can create mm-hmm. um, rather than can we go and score three. And it's some teams that want to try and go and go out and try and score three and then they end up getting battered a few times and they stop doing it. Yeah. And they change the way they play. So it's um yeah, we've we've evolved a couple of times over the season. Um the players have done remarkably well. Benji's been incredible, Shanks has been incredible. Um Liam Smith should be in a Scotland squad, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So we're not we're not far away from being a good top six team, I don't yep. think. Um, it's just adding a wee bit of consistency and um, creating a little bit more chances. But I think if you speak to any of the staff and any of the players, they would all they would all say the same thing. You know, if we can create some more chances, then we will score more goals because we've got the yep. quality to do it. Yeah, and Mickey Mellon, as I said, has been a real uh, bright spark in the season in the Scottish League, certainly from my point of view. In terms of your relationship with the players, Stevie, um, who have you had good banter and good crack with? Um, I'm quite tight with Cammy Smith. <laughs> Cammy's away here. Um, he's moving to America soon. Um, I got on well with him. Shanks got on well with. I got on with most of them. Like they're a good group. Of course, of course. But is there any standout candidates? Sparky's, a, Sparky's a, an infectious character. Ian Harks is like the most polite, nicest, generous guy in the world. Um, they're all good guys. Like there's nobody, there's nobody in the dressing room you would say, oh, he's a, he's a bit of a tube or that, but. Nah, they're all they're all good guys. Um, yeah, they try their hardest to help out. Adrian. Some of them trying Spanish lessons to to speak to Adrian, which is quite funny. And um, remember, Butch <laughs> last year was <laughs> Calvin Butch was like doing some Spanish lessons and speaking to Adrian. And it was it was quite interesting. Um, there's a few <laughs> of us that can speak French. Jondo's <laughs> quite a funny guy. Like some of them, they're talking about good players who they've played with and stuff. Oh, this guy was a good player then. One of them says, here, John Doe, who, who's the best player you played with? It's like, oh, Mbappe. Brilliant, brilliant. No, I think that's absolutely... Yeah, no, that's absolutely fantastic. They're all good guys. They're all good guys. I wouldn't have a bad word said about any of them. 
Yeah, absolutely. I was just having a look at your Twitter here, Stevie, because you're a designer of Tactical Teacher um, and, and have an uh, on-site soccer consulting uh, page. Um, what's that all about? I'm just having a look at this now. Tactical Teacher e-learning for soccer tactics. Is this something that you've personally created? Yeah, so when I was doing my B licence, um, a lot of the guys struggled a little bit to see things quickly, mm. like tactical um tactical scenarios and how to solve the problems really quickly which i could at the time i'd been um i'd been on tv in india doing like a monday night football thing for about two years so i was not really quite good at it and then what i did was i made an e-course to try and teach other people how to what does it look like in terms of tactical theory um can you create screenshots of what it looks like and then can you create a, a video to show it happening in a live game so i made a bunch of courses to help people with that so with a, quite a lot of subscribers. It's been, I think it's in like 130 countries now. Wow. So I'm doing that for a while. Um, we started making an app quite a bit of time ago. And then once we were ready to launch, I decided to, to pause it and rewrite everything because I, I didn't like it. So I rewrote it all. Yeah, so absolutely fantastic. It was an app on the App Store. Hopefully, hopefully start the next month. Excellent. Um, one of the modules will be free to download as part of the, part of the course and then you can pay for the rest of them brilliant well if you're interested in that please head to stevie's uh, twitter page to have a look i'm sure and um, he'll post updates uh, about that in due course some really interesting stuff and certainly something that i'll be keeping an eye on and you also mentioned about the time that you were in india and i was having a look at your vimeo account as well because uh, some really interesting stuff that you have here particularly on mind game and uh, a range of other things including pressing and range of movement of players yeah, like I had my own TV show for, for two and a half years. I covered the Champions League, kind of what they do in Sky um, mm-hmm. in India for over 250 shows. So I did that for a while. On my on my video page, there are some some episodes of Mind Game that we managed to get onto my hard drive before I left, which was, yeah. was good to the, the guys that worked there. That was that was helpful. Because um, it was it was broadcast in Asia. It wasn't broadcast like anywhere else. So yes. um, I've got them for posterity. They're, I watch them now and I think, my God, we could have made them so much better. But um, we had generally a three-hour turnaround. We'd finish mm-hmm. on a Thursday night from the Europa League yeah. at four in the morning. And then we'd be in the studio again at eight o'clock in the morning, making the show, calibrating it all. And then we'd have to finish by 12 because Dub after us. So it was, um, it, was a, it was an interesting time. And to put together a show of that quality in that short a time frame with the work schedule that we had was incredible by all the staff. Yeah, absolutely. Some some really interesting stuff. I was having a look at that before we came on the show, and you've done some fantastic work there. And who knows, maybe there's a time to reprise that perhaps in Scotland. Maybe not just you by yourself, but some other people as well. Maybe if uh, Jonathan Sutherland gives me a call, I'll do it. <laughs> oh, Jonathan, if you're listening, there's your man. Stevie, we're coming to the end of the, the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. Lots of really interesting nuggets of information, particularly about your time at Dundee United. What does the future hold for you, but also for Dundee United as a club moving forward? Because as I said, I think it's a very exciting phase for the Tangerines. Yeah, I think since since Tony, Tony took over as sporting director and the Ogrens bought the club, I think they've worked really hard to fix some of the infrastructure in the club, improve a lot of the processes, invest in the academy, invest in the first team squad. Um, so going forward, I think the position we are in the league this season where we finish now is, you know, I think at worst we'll finish as ninth, best we can finish as seventh. Um, but that's just the starting point, I think, for this team because there's a lot of really good young players coming in, very good squad of solid pros who 
who know the league and are good players and work well together. Um, the staff work their hardest every day to try and make sure the team is as prepared as possible and on the training field. So it's, um, I think because everybody does such a good job on a daily basis, they will, you know, the players will kick on, the staff will kick on, and the club will naturally, as as part of the team doing well in the park, grow its grow its revenue and everything else. And I think the biggest thing for this season as a newly promoted team is you, you miss the fans massively. Mm. In the last season, there were there were a few times where, like the Dundee game, for example, the Inverness game at the start of the season, um, where you really feel the benefit of having a full house at Tannadice. And yes, I haven't had that this season. I think it's it's been a, it's been sad mm-hmm. because it's, I think there's a lot of people in, in Dundee or Dundee United fans who their life revolves around the club. Absolutely. They've been in the Championship four or five years and first year back in the Premier League and nobody's there to see it. It's, it's sad, but um, we're in a good position. Everybody's ready to work hard and move the team forward for next season. Um, the coaching staff deserve enormous credit because they've done... They've done so well to manage to just get us in a solid position. Mickey, Stevie, Grant, Abel, everybody on the training pitch, Neil Alexander for mm. his work with Benji. Um, they deserve great credit for the position that we're in and I think the boys have done fantastic. and um, We're in a good position to kick on. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, she's beat Aberdeen uh, last weekend as well, which uh, was a good result for you guys. Not for me, but nevertheless, it's all about uh, the fun and, and really great to see Dunning, as I said, back in the top flight. Stevie, your journey, I'm sure, will go from strength to strength. Some really interesting nuggets during this podcast. And I want to wish you personally all the very best. And to Dundee United fans and supporters and even players listening to this as well, all the best as well. Thanks for coming on Campbell's Fools to share your story with me. Cheers, Grant. Well, listener, that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Campbell's Footballs. I hope this podcast was just what the doctor ordered. If you want to listen to previous shows or look out for future shows, follow Campbell's Footballs on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to other podcasts. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Campbell's Footballs. Search for me, StatoG91 on Instagram or other social media channels. But until then, until next time... I hope you enjoyed the crack and enjoy Campbell's footballs. What a dangerous night.